Welcome to another episode of our podcast series, Basura Ideas for Malaysia by the Help Movement. Help was founded to champion the voice of youth and nation building, to provide a platform for aspiring young Malaysians to exchange ideas on a variety of topics that contribute to building Malaysia. My name is Fang, and I study comparative literature at King's College London. Today, we have two special guests, a guest moderator and our speaker. I will now hand over to Abby to introduce herself. Hi, everyone. I'm Aberna Devi Kuhanandan. You can call me Abby. And I am the guest moderator from Kumas, which is Cambridge University Malaysia Society. And I'm studying a weird degree called Human, Social and Political Sciences at the University of Cambridge. In this episode, we dive into the topic of the effects of COVID-19 on education in Malaysia. We have with us Mr. Shanka Ihambaram who is from Pemimpin GSL and an alumni of Teach for Malaysia, and he's here to share his insights. For those who aren't familiar with Teach for Malaysia, Teach for Malaysia is an independent, nonprofit organization with a mission to give all children an opportunity to attain quality education. It is part of the global education network Teach for All over 50 countries worldwide and offers opportunities for university students and graduates like you and me to join the movement. Mr. Shankar, you were a Teach for Malaysia fellow. We'll now hand over to Mr. Shankar to introduce himself and his work at Pemimpin GSL. So I'm Shankar. Uh, I work as the program lead at Pemimpin GSL. Essentially what we do at Pemimpin GSL is we coach and train school leaders, uh, which are senior leaders and also principals in kind of moving the needle in terms of student outcomes in their school. I guess that's the, the brief version. Like, and like you mentioned, I was a TFM fellow prior to that. So yeah, so I have experience in terms of working in both a whole school level and also in terms of from a grassroots point of view as a teacher prior to this. I, I was actually a literature student as well. Uh, so fun. So yeah, it's nice to meet a fellow literature student. Yeah, that's good to know. So thank you all for coming on this podcast. It's great to have the two of you on board for this podcast. We're really looking forward to hearing your valuable views and experience regarding this topic. Without further ado, I will jump into the first question. So as we know, literacy rates at education levels have fallen due to the pandemic and there is this physical divide. So if we look at how long FCOs have been in place since the start of lockdown, students have missed almost a year's worth of physical education. So what has been the effects of COVID-19 on education in Malaysia? Oh, I mean, it's been immense. It's not just Malaysia. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a global thing. I think each country deals dealt with it differently and still deals with it differently. Uh, in Malaysia, I think one of the biggest issues is then moving towards a kind of online version of education and what they call PDPR, which works for you know, students or families that are you know, not from the B40 community, but it kind of increases that gap that we already saw between these communities prior to the pandemic. Now it's even worse. And if the child wasn't doing so well prior to the pandemic, now the child is probably doing a lagging behind even you know, further back. So there's so many things. And I can't you know, kind of summarize this in like a few sentences. But yeah, I think essentially what we call learning loss is happening right now. And it's a, it's a global thing, but a good deal of Malaysian students are going through that currently. So uh, an example of that would be, I can't remember the exact statistics, but if you don't go to school for about I think 16 weeks or something like that, 
you essentially you know lag behind in terms of more than a year or something if i'm not mistaken i sorry two two months or three months and you lag in terms of more than a year that's usually what we call learning loss in, in that sense and they have been out of school for about a month it's like a year and a half now more more or less so you can do the math <laughs> Yeah, and I think taking off on that, talking about the usage of technology and internet for online learning nowadays. I currently uh, I mentor for Closing the Gap as well, and one thing we've realized from Closing the Gap as well is that there's so much learning loss that you coined very well that has happened and has exacerbated the divide. And I realized because I stalked you on LinkedIn, <laughs> I stalked you on LinkedIn, and I realized that you also did measurement and evaluation. And I was wondering, what have you noticed from the use of technology and the effectiveness of measurement and evaluation in assessing the effect, sort of like the effectiveness of that in assessing the effectiveness of technology? What have you kind of like ascertained from that? It's a very difficult question to answer, but I'll try to put that very simple, very short, summarize it. So I guess what we want to look at is whether or not technology is a good conduit to replace physical classrooms. And in my opinion, it is not. And it'll never be a mixed mode is something a little it's a little more it's a little better in terms of kind of getting students to where you want to get them but in terms of using technology and specifically in malaysia that's a huge gap in terms of teachers using technology and understanding how technology works and then also school leaders in kind of implementing these technological solutions in their schools to move the needle what we look at is how school leaders use technology to then bring these processes to teachers and then how teachers therefore take these tools and teach their students now the link between school leader to teacher is a little easier to establish but the link between using technology and kind of trying to address the learning loss in students it's a little harder to get to because i mean it's still a new area for you know even the global community research is coming out and we're slowly coming out with that with that data but i think the consensus is that it's not necessarily the best thing to do to rely completely on technology i think a mixed mode is always a better solution and and it generally is the consensus in, in the global community in terms of education. Thank you for that. So other than this technology and other than we see like the initiative in 2021 budgets to distribute laptops to schools and the use of technology. So what do you think other than that can be done to support these students and close the gap between students and teachers? I would say, I mean, there are definitely devices and laptops and you know, handphones and you know, those kind of things that are definitely necessary to just start the, the whole process. But I would say, you know, focusing on training and on capacity building of teachers and how to use these tools more effectively, that is one part of the puzzle. And then, of course, whether or not the students have access in terms of devices, it's another part of the puzzle. And then if they do have devices, whether or not they have access in terms of connectivity is another part of the puzzle. And if you, when you get all three of these working, and you have a really good teacher who knows how to use technology and they have a student who's really, who has connectivity and the devices, then you have a fourth kind of puzzle to it, which is then whether or not the student is actually interested in coming to these online classes 
Uh, and that will definitely go back to number one and whether or not the teacher is making the lessons interesting enough, useful enough for them to come. Because essentially what teachers have lost right now is the ability to force students to sit down in their classes. Right? So right now when, when an online class goes along and the kid doesn't like it, he can just turn it off. They didn't have that luxury uh, prior to that. You know, They didn't have that luxury of just that screaming at the kid and said, hey, you sit down. Now the kid just, you know, it's like, uh, I can't hear you. And then they disappear from the, from the call. So you need all of these things to be able to, I guess, to, have, to say that you have an effective classroom. And I guess in terms of what the government can then do is to look at these parts separately and bring them together and make a whole lot of it. Right. Thank you for that. A follow-up question on that, because I think one thing that I really captured in your answer earlier was the phrase mixed methods. I, I like the phrase, I like the fact that you use a lot of nice phrases that kind of just like coin the essence of what you're saying, right? So we do know that, okay, the pandemic is temporary, but a lot of the changes are going to be permanent. So with the concept of like a mixed method way of education, do you think the Malaysian model of education is prepared for that to take it for the long run? If not, what can be done about it from like all levels, from the government to, you know, organizations like Pemimpin GSL and so on and so forth? I'll start out with what we are doing. And, you know, when I design the programs at Pemimpin GSL, I think one of the big things that we want to think about is ensuring that a lot of the knowledge and a lot of the skills that teachers have gained during the pandemic, i.e. the technological advancement in terms of their knowledge, doesn't just disappear when classrooms open again. And it, it's typical for you know, any human being to go back to what they were used to you know, uh, prior to a difficult circumstance. So it's just, it's just psychological. But school leaders can then do is to ensure that, that teachers are using both their in-classroom experience and also the experience that they've gotten from teaching their classes online and then sort of melding that together. That is one that at, at a school level that can be done and what you know, organizations like us are, are trying to train our school leaders on. The other thing I think in terms of what the government can do is to ensure that these changes continue and not merely continue, but to support them in the continuation of these changes. So to continuously give them capacity building on how to run these kind of mixed method classes, giving them what you would say, flexibility in running some of these classes online and running some of these classes in a physical classroom, or just giving that teacher that kind of flexibility to say, I trust in you and you can do this and we're gonna help you do it. Um, I think, that is going to take a while to happen from a, from a government standpoint, from a Ministry of Education standpoint, because there's a lot of reporting that needs to be done. There's a lot of paperwork that needs to be done for a given teacher. And also, I think trusting their teacher sometimes can be a little low on that scale. So I think that also needs to improve before we can see these kind of flexibility and these kind of mixed modes to, to kind of become commonplace in the school world. Yeah, so you, you say in Pemimpin GSL, you train teachers and school leaders. So I was wondering during the past year, was there any changes in your approach to training these teachers or are there any workshops that you held online to support online learning and the changes you wish to see? 
Yeah, I mean, we changed, uh, we pivoted 180 degrees. We had to, because essentially before the pandemic, we provided all our workshops in person and uh, it was an in-person program. So the, the coaching was done in person as well. So a given coach would actually go to the schools the school leaders were in and, and coach them there. So for us, A, the program had to completely pivot to an online model, right? And I think from that, we, we started to see the learnings. Even just for us to pivot it completely online took a few months to, for me to just kind of see how the program was going to go. The second thing is, you know, when it comes to school leaders, we started to see that they were not necessarily so used to using technology because technology was just something that you know, didn't really cross their mind. If they wanted to talk to someone, they didn't get on a phone call, they just called them over to the office. Uh, and now suddenly everyone is saying that you need to do this on Google Meet and Zoom. What is that? You know, in, in, in a school leader's head, it's like, I have no idea how to do these things. So uh, what we did in terms of our workshops was to integrate a technological component in every skill that a school leader would require um, to do. So for instance, one of the things that we look at is the instructional capabilities of the instructional leadership of a school leader, which essentially is as a school leader, you need to drive instructional practices in your school. Prior to the pandemic, a lot of these things could be done without the intervention of technology. It's just essentially just walking around the school, checking, giving feedback. But during the pandemic, how do you do all these things? How do you manage these things? So then we always included a technological component that said that, you still need to do these things. These are universal in, in order to bring impact to, to your students. But now you're going to be doing it using technology and this is how you're going to do it. Yeah. So I think that that's how we, we kind of shifted in that sense. Yeah. Um, Abby, do you have a question? Okay. Yeah, I'm good to go actually. I think the explanations have been so comprehensive. Like, wow, you really are a leader in your field. No, thank you, Abby. <laughs> Okay, so this is one last question that I'm very interested in. So I think it's kind of similar. So I was reading Pomimpin GSLs and one of the article, they said that they would this pandemic allows an opportunity for us to reimagine the curriculum into a more student-centered learning and for school leaders to realign their roles to support teachers to ensure students are actually learning. Could you please elaborate on that? And what do you think that the changes that brought about during the pandemic? Like what is going to stay? I think one of the things that the pandemic has really made us question is, what is the purpose of a school? Is it just to get kids sit down, or any learning institution or educational institution? Is it just to get students in a classroom, drill a bunch of stuff into their heads and then say, you're prepared for the world and send them out their merry way? Or is it really to get them to learn, to learn skills, to learn what is actually relevant for the outside world, to learn, you know, things that can actually remove them, you know, out of the, the circle of poverty. And the pandemic has shown that the latter is what it is necessary, but it's so difficult to do that with the pandemic happening. And I think a lot of uh, educationists and also, you know, uh, people on the top have been questioning these things prior to the pandemic itself. You know, there's a lot of pressure on not changing, right? Because you can't just simply change, for instance, the curricula. 
of uh, you know your, your primary school or secondary school because a lot of terminal examinations impinge upon these things. And yeah. for instance, SPM. And SPM, therefore, it's an international standard that universities will require for admission. So there's a lot of things that you know kind of overlap upon each other. You can't just simply change these things without a huge amount of implications for the students. But I think what we need to look at is, you know, at least for now, is the approach on how we do these things. Not necessarily changing the syllabus. I think the syllabus isn't bad, you know. I think the execution of the syllabus, of course, does leave a lot to be desired. And they have moved to, you know, in certain ways, they've moved a great deal towards the right direction. For instance, they have abolished examinations prior to the pandemic, some of the lower particular primary school examinations. And now they've abolished also UPSR. And I think you know, these are moving towards the right direction. So the intention is moving towards the right direction. Perhaps the ability to execute it proficiently hasn't. So I think that is what they need to be doing right now, training their teachers, training their staff, and getting them to a level that you can say, when our kids come out of X, Y, Z, um, you know, when they come out of high school or secondary school, they will be at the level that they be world-class, you know, they, they can compete with any other educational institution in the world, whether it's Finland, whether it's the UK, whether it's the US, or Singapore. I mean, Singapore and, and Finland are the two highest one at this point. So I guess it's how you do it, I would say, rather than what is it that you do in, in, in many cases. And the curricula doesn't necessarily need to change, but how they use that curricula and how they teach our kids. Now that needs to drastically change, in my opinion. I think that was a very profound answer. Wow. Yeah. I think as on a personal note as well, my mother is a teacher and she's kind of like a senior citizen. And so she was ranting about how a lot of students are not getting the same kind of teaching that, you know, my generation got. And I actually sat down with her and I said, yes, they aren't, but they're also learning things that my generation never learned. So it's kind of this like trying to form this hybrid that is going to be, I think, the way forward. And I think you really phrased it really well. So thank you for that. You're welcome, Abby. <laughs> so I certainly hope that we are moving towards a better education. So thank you all for your responses. Before we wrap up, we would like to invite Cambridge Malaysian Society to talk about their new funding initiative, which we think is extremely beneficial to all students in these trying times. All right, thank you. So a little introduction about our new fund that we're establishing this year. It's called the Came Bridging Fund. And the idea is to bridge the gap between financial ability to apply for Cambridge and the lack thereof. So we find that a lot of students struggle with applications to Cambridge because applications themselves cost a lot of money. So the idea of the Cambridging Fund is to support these students in applications through two different processes. Number one, through the interview process, which normally costs from about 50 pounds for virtual interviews and 150 pounds for in-person interviews, along with also at a specific Cambridge application form that costs 30 pounds. So if you take a look at it, the range that students have to fork out just to apply would be from 500 ringgit to about a thousand ringgit. So that's a lot. And so one thing that Cambridge Malaysia Society that we are trying to do is create a sense of like a fund that students can apply to in order to get funding to support their 
UCAS application to university itself. So in this year, we are going to be supporting 15 applicants, and this will be through a selection criteria, i.e. academic qualifications, household incomes, and also sort of personal statements and essays to support their passion, along with some sort of personalized support that can come from this application itself. So once we sort of shortlist candidates, we hope that this will spur more people to actually start the process of application because a lot of students from Sunway College, from Taylor's College, they always complain about how even getting to that first step is a challenge, let alone, you know, acquiring a scholarship beyond that. So we hope to sort of give that little lift to that first step to enable them to secure a Cambridge admissions offer and then proceed with further scholarship applications. So this is kind of like a little brief about the Cambridging Fund, and we'll be posting a lot more about it on our Instagram page. But ideally, our application process starts on the 17th of July, which is this month, and ends on the 15th of August. So keep updated on our Instagram. We hope to see a lot of applications and we hope to get more Malaysians in Cambridge because we really need a more international community. Yeah, that's about it from Kumas first. Okay, so with that, this concludes our podcast titled A Lost Generation. I would like to thank both speakers Abby and Mr. Shankar for their time, and I hope our listeners have found this beneficial. The deadline for the funding applications are around the corner, so apply soon. Do tune in next week, next time for our next podcast. Hub Movement, aiming to build a better Malaysia. Follow MLUK as well as the Hub Movement on Facebook right now. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to leave a like and follow us on Anchor as well as Spotify. We release a monthly update with tons of interesting new topics. So stay tuned. See you on our next episode.